Good morning. Good morning. Holy cow, that's a lot of snow out there. So a little secret about me, um, I am not a fan of winter. Uh, pretty much everybody in the, uh, in, in the town, I'm sure at this point, it kind of agrees with me. But no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not a big fan of winter. It's funny, I grew up in Chicago. I moved from there to Minnesota. I currently live in Council Bluffs, and Council Bluffs is the furthest south I've ever lived. Yet, I do not like winter, so figure that one out. I, I call it an, an informed hatred of winter. <laughs> But no, so uh, yeah, that's a lot of snow out there. Holy cow. Well, hey, folks, we are doing a, uh, a new series that we're kicking off today. We're calling it The Big Picture. Because see, starting on Wednesday, we actually uh, ended up, we, we started into this season leading up to Easter. Depending on what tradition that you may have come from in the past, um, you may have called this uh, the season of expectation. You may have called this Lent. Uh, but this is the season in which we, the people of God, are preparing for this mighty, big, huge center holiday of our, of our year, which is Easter Sunday. You see, on Easter, this, is, this, this day coming up, this is when Jesus conquers death, he conquers sin, he comes out of the grave, and just says to the world, basically changes the entire universe by saying to the world that not even death can make Jesus quiver. And in, in that whole passion that week, Jesus is taking our sins, he's taking our failures, he's taking our punishment on him, and then conquers death by coming out of that grave. It's such a huge center point of our faith that in these weeks leading up to it, it's, we enter in this, this season of expectation for the church. And so we're kind of honoring that this year by going through the Bible, looking at the big events in Scripture that point to Jesus. And we'll be doing that throughout this entire Lent season. Uh, so every Sunday we'll be going through a, an area of the Bible that points to Jesus. Um, and then also, we'll also be doing videos in the midweek, uh, probably around Thursdays, where you'll see a video posted on our Facebook page, kind of going into a little deeper on possibly the sermon or on, on a, a section of scripture kind of that wasn't quite big enough to talk about in the sermon, but between the two sermons, basically just kind of working through how the Bible leads to Jesus. Because me personally... I believe that the Bible is one big, long, complex story of God and his people, and it all points to Jesus. All of it. Even in the very beginning, which we're going to talk about today, we're going to be talking about Genesis. We're going to talk about the creation and fall of mankind, and how this creation, how this fall, how, our, how mankind's failure actually points towards the coming Savior and the coming victory. Now, before I get into it, anytime I talk about Genesis, anytime I talk about Genesis, I have to address the, uh, the 400-pound gorilla in the room, which is, I always get this question, yeah, but is Genesis real? Because, you know, on one side, you have people who believe that, you know, Genesis, it's, it's all 100% literal, as, as the statements in the scripture say, that, you know, it's tw- tw- uh, six 24-hour days where, where the world was created, um, that everything happened exactly as scripture says, you have the other side that says, and these are also Bible-believing Christians that, that say that, now Genesis is more of an allegory, it's a story um, to, to inform believers of the truth of, of God and the truth of creation. I'm just going to say this, I'm not interested in having that conversation today. That's a whole nother sermon. Honestly, where we need to start from is the fact that God did it. Me, personally, I tend to land kind of a little more towards the literal side. Uh, not completely, but a little more towards the literal than, than the figurative. But at the same time, uh, honestly, at the end of the day, it's about God did it. 
This is a story, no matter how you take the literal nature of the scripture, this is a story about how God created mankind and how mankind was given everything they need and then mankind failed. And so, depending on what school of thought you are, doesn't matter, you can approach the lesson the same way. And that is, God did it. God did it. So we're going to jump right into scripture. We're uh, going to go into Genesis 2, starting in verse 8, and this is the creation of paradise itself. Here we are, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed, the man, um, Adam, uh, is is another word for uh, mankind or humanity, is put the man that he had formed. Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, trees that were good for food. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. So two trees. Now, interesting note, they had everything they needed here. Every need that they could have was met. Every desire, it was all there. They could pick food from the trees. They could pick it from the bushes on the ground. I kind of wonder sometimes, was there bacon in Eden? Because, like, I like bacon. Bacon is good. But, like, there's no death in Eden. So, like, is there, like, a magic pig that just gives bacon? I don't know. Me, me and God are going to have to have that conversation later. But, no, I mean, so you can have all of your needs met in this paradise. And then there's two trees in the center of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God sets forth some rules, okay? He sets up some rules, all right? He says, you know, hey, you guys, you can eat of any tree in the garden. You can have any fruit you want. You can eat anything you see. It's all good, except for that tree right there, that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that tree. I don't want that for you. That's not what I want for you. Leave it alone. And so... Mankind doesn't. Adam and Eve, they go through the garden. They live their lives. They're enjoying the fruits of, of the garden. They live their life there. Interesting note here. Actually, this isn't on the screen behind me, but in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Which means even in paradise, even in the, the perfect creation before the fall of mankind, there's still work. <laughs> That tells you something about the nature of work. God made us to do things, to be active in creation, to add to creation, to participate in creation. We're not merely observers. That even in perfection, even in paradise, we have a job to do. So no, just, just an interesting note there. But anyway, so we have these rules. We can eat from any tree of the garden. We can eat from any tree of the garden, but, but mankind cannot eat from this one single tree which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Imagine that. All your needs met. But just one, one rule. Don't eat from that tree. And then we meet an interesting character. We meet the serpent. The serpent's in the garden. It's one of the wild animals listed um, uh, in the garden. Um, and the serpent is characterized as being a little more Manipulative. So, verse 1, chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Did, you, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, real quick, that's a, 
God didn't say that. God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except that one, but he twisted that truth. He's like, did God really say you couldn't eat any of these fruits? Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, if you, and you must not even touch it, or you will die. Now God doesn't say don't touch it. God, God says don't eat it. And then the serpent comes in, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. An interesting thing about how the, how the serpent twists the words here. You know, the fruit, we know later that you know, God does warn them that, you know, if you, eat this, if you eat this fruit, you will surely die. But the fruit isn't what, what kills you. Okay, the fruit isn't what kills you. It's, it's the mortality of man that, that, that means that they will surely die. And so the, uh, the, the snake, the serpent, kind of spins that a little bit. It's like, you will not die if you eat the fruit. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes are gonna be open. You're gonna be like God, being able to see the wisdom and the knowledge of the universe, to be able to discern between good and evil. I don't know what it was like to be a human being before eating that fruit because I, I know good and evil. But like imagine not having to worry about good and bad decisions. Like everything is just provided for you and you can walk and, and you can just walk through life knowing that you're okay. However, if we eat this tree... Suddenly you have this knowledge of good and evil. It's this higher wisdom, this ability to see the, the puppet strings in the universe, the, the good side and the bad side of things. And so the serpent is saying, no, nah, God doesn't want you to eat that because then you'd be like him. His ability, his wisdom to see the good and the bad, the sides of things. Don't, it, it, don't listen to God. He's trying to hoard that wisdom. And so Eve looks at the fruit. You kind of think, think through her perspective for a second. Eve looks at the fruit. It looks good. It's not one of those weird fruits that like has that weird, weird smell. No, it's like a beautiful, like juicy peach or a crisp apple. She looks at the fruit and it looks really good. And think about it. If, if eating this fruit grants me wisdom, Grumps me knowledge. If I'm better having partake, I'll, I'll be more experienced if I partake in this. I'll be, I'll be deeper. I'll be more like God if I eat this fruit. So she does. So her and Adam both eat the fruit. Eve grabs it and gives it to her husband, and her husband eats it. And, and then something happens. And something happens. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They suddenly felt shame. That's what happened. They, with this knowledge of good and evil, they suddenly realized, oh, I messed up. And they felt shame. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, which, by the way, I think is hilarious that you, you think you could hide from God. All-knowing, all-powerful, hiding from God. Oh, okay. 
the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Which I think is equally funny because I think of like, you know, when my, my daughter was like a toddler and she would like hide in the living room, like curl up in a ball in the middle of the room and think she's hiding. And I'd be like, oh, where'd Abby go? He's God, he knows where they are. But he's kind of playing their game right there. He's like, where are you? And then Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In other words, I am ashamed, and so I'm hiding from the consequences. Verse 11, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now remember, God knows. And so what happens? The man said, no, 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 the the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. In other words, it wasn't my fault. I I was just doing what she did. It's all her. It's all her fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, said to Eve, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, no, 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 no. The serpent deceived me. The devil made me do it. It wasn't my fault. Does this sound familiar? See, they suddenly regretted their decision. They made this decision that they they went against the rules, they broke the rules, and in that moment where they realized they broke the rules, when they had suddenly this knowledge of good and evil, they suddenly realized they messed up. They made the wrong choice, and there was this wave of regret, and they immediately felt shame. And what they do with that shame? They, they covered up. They hid. They placed blame and dodged responsibility. They tried to justify their actions. This is the course that every single human being takes when we mess up. It's the same for all of us, right? We're, we're provided with what we need. God gives us what we need. Maybe, maybe you, were, you, were, you had a good thing going. You were born to a good family or you have a good job or, I don't know, for whatever reason, you're in a good situation or at least not a bad one and there are some rules in that situation. You know, you're in this, just, just don't push the button. You're good, just don't push the button. But what happens if you tell someone not to push the button? We push the button. <laughs> You know, the truth gets twisted. Why can't I push the button? What's wrong with the button? What's so important with the button? What happens if I push the button? Ah, uh, it's nothing big. I, it's, it must not be that important. Now watch, I'm going to go push the button just to prove that it's not important. Or why can't I push the button? I can push the button. So you push the button. You mess up. You make the decision you're not supposed to. You, know, you say the thing that you're not supposed to. You take the step you're not supposed to. And there's that immediate sense of regret. Maybe it's a split second. Maybe you're you're really good at, at, at pushing through that. But we all get that. That moment where you realized you messed up. And it's like if you slowed down time in your brain, you said it's like, oh no. Okay, how do I make this better? Oh no, I pushed the button. I messed up. And then it gets to the, the, the regret and the justification step where suddenly we need to, to think of a, a, a reason or, or shift blame or, or, or justify what we did. No, no, I didn't push the button. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. 
Or no, no, he made me push the button. He, he's the one who, he's the one who, who made me push the button. I'm like, I pushed the button, but I, I did it on accident. I just kind of tripped and landed on the button. Oh, you mean this button? I thought you meant that button over there. See, we're really good at justification. We're really good at justification. We're really good at justifying our actions or shifting blame. From- I know I am. I mean, like, I, I wear, I wear my, 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 uh, my sin out in the open. Like, I'm, I'm a big dude, and I'm not a big dude because of a, 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 a medical condition. I'm a big dude for the condition of loving cheeseburgers. <laughs> um, I like cheeseburgers. I like pizza. And man, I can, I can justify, I could be on any diet in the world and I can justify those decisions in the, in the moment. Like, no, 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 I've been, I've been good all day. I'm gonna drive through McDonald's. Or like, no, it's just, it's just a slice of pizza, which then, it's just another slice of pizza, and then it's just a pizza. <laughs> I'll make the justifications. I'm really good at justifying to myself why my missteps are Okay. A lot of people are. We're really good at that as a culture. We're good at taking our our missteps and instead somehow spinning the truth into making them wins. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm living my truth. That's what it is. I'm just being real with you. You know, gotta love me at my worst if you're ever gonna accept me at my best. We do that. We justify our destructive tendencies because we are destructive. We, but we don't want to face that and so we, we dodge. We shift blame. We justify. But there are real consequences. There are very real consequences. For Adam and Eve's case, they were banished from the garden. They were banished from the garden and they're forced to work even harder to eke a living out of the ground. They have to toil and sweat to pull a crop out of the ground in order for them to eat. Everything becomes harder because it's no longer handed to them on a silver platter. And not only that, God makes sure that they can never enter paradise again. He sends a cherubim, a cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden. Now real quick, when I say cherub, if in your head you're thinking of like a pudgy cute little baby with little tiny wings, that's wrong. I don't know where that image came from. I need to do a historical research to figure that out. But a cherub in scripture is actually terrifying. A cherub in scripture is a holy angelic warrior. They have like three faces, one of an ox and one of a human and I think an eagle or something. They have giant fiery wings. This one's carrying a flaming sword. They are terrifying. There is a reason that the first thing an angel ever says to a human being is do not be afraid because when you see one, you're like, (gasps) a cherub is guarding the, the garden, to make sure that no one can come back in, to make sure that humanity is eternally barred from entering this paradise. Right? There are consequences. We can ignore them. We can choose to say they don't exist. We can choose to say, no, they're not for me, or we can justify our actions, but it doesn't change the fact that there are consequences that result and our missteps. And not just for us, God actually addresses the serpent. The one who initially deceives mankind, he addresses the serpent, and he says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. 
and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, which real quick makes me really confused. What did a, what did a serpent do before this? It was like, did snakes have wings or like 12 legs or something? I don't know. But he said, no, from now on, because of you doing this, you're punished and you're going to crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. This is interesting because so God says to the deceiver, to the serpent, to the one that lied, the one that spun reality in a way to manipulate mankind to make the decisions they did. God God holds him accountable to it and he says, someone is coming from the one that you deceived, an offspring of Eve that is going to crush you, that is going to crush your head. Victory over the deception is coming. This story of Adam and Eve may be a story of human failure. It's a story that we can all relate to in the terms of our own process of dealing with our own failure, facing our own mistakes, our own sin. But it closes with the statement that the failure is not the final word because there is someone who is coming who's going to put an end to the deceiver. There is a victory on its way. The story of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden is the story of mankind's failure to honor the word of God. It's our failure to honor what God has provided for us through his love. Yet, it's also the story that sets up this fact that this failure will not be the final chapter of mankind. This failure is not what defines us because there is a day that is coming where the snake, where the serpent, his head is going to be crushed by the one that comes later. Now we are on this side of Easter, so we understand what that means. We're talking about Jesus. Because there is, a, there is someone at this point who is coming, there's someone for us who has come, who has come and taken the punishment and taken the failures that we each carry. He's taken that upon himself. He's gone to the cross and paid that price that was meant for us. And he took all of that scorn, took all of that punishment, he took all of that pain, that destruction that we caused, he took that on himself on that cross and died. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because three days later he came out of that tomb. Three days later he stepped out of that tomb. And what that action does is that says that not even death, not even punishment, not even the consequences of sin can hold God back. That says that Jesus, God, has the ultimate authority over us, not the deceiver. In stepping out of that tomb, he signed the death warrant of sin itself. The story of Adam and Eve is not just a story. It's not just something to tell each other, not just something to to explain how we exist. This is God explaining his promise, saying that not only do I understand that you will fail, mankind fails. Not only do I understand that you will fail, 
Not only do I understand that that failure will hurt, there will be consequences, it will be painful, there will be times when it is just hard to move. I get it, but that failure is not the end. Because I am sending someone who is going to crush the deceiver. I'm sending someone who is rewriting your story. What this means for us is that no matter where we come from, no matter what mistakes or scars are written on our heart, no matter how we've messed up, no matter how we continue to mess up, we are no longer defined by that failure. We're no longer defined by our sin. We're no longer defined by the people we've hurt or the destruction we've caused. And if we're carrying that weight, we don't need to carry it any longer because God has already come and he's already done the action that crushes the the serpent's head. He's already put to death sin and consequences. He's already taken your payment on himself and he's already conquered it. He's already saved you. The story of Adam and Eve is actually a story of hope from failure because it sets up the fact that your story is not over. Your story, your story is instead defined by the fact that the God who loves you enough to give you all of your needs loves you so much that he comes to this world and dies for you to conquer your failure, my failure. We are not defined by our scars. We are not defined by our darkest thoughts. We are not defined by our temptations or our mistakes. We are instead defined by one thing, and that's the fact that we are loved. Because the deceiver has been cast aside. Let's pray. Dear Father God, I can't even begin to comprehend the level, the, the, what, what this grace really means. I can't even begin to wrap my head around the pain you felt on my behalf or why you would even, why you would think I'm valuable enough for that. And while I don't understand it, while I don't, I don't comprehend it, God, I accept it. I accept it with humility. I don't know why you love me, but you do. And for that, I I am eternally thankful that I am no longer defined by my worst characteristics, but instead defined by the fact that the God of the universe loves me. Holy cow, God, you are amazing. God, I want that truth to shine in our lives going forward from this place. We are not a people defined by our scars. We are a people defined by your hope. We are a people defined by your love. Help us reflect that reality into the world around us, our friends, our family, our neighbors. Let us be a light into this world to show people that their failures no longer hold them down because you've crushed the serpent's head. You've cast aside the deceiver. God, you are good. You're so good, and we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.